तदेकं स्मरामस्तदेकं हजामह तदेकं जगत्साक्षिरूपं नमामह सदेकं निधानं निरालंबमीशं भवांबोधिपोतं शरण्यं रजामह ओम शांति 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 On that alone do we meditate, that alone do we worship, to that alone the witness of the universe do we bow, to that one who is our sole eternal support, the self-existent Lord, the raft to safety across the ocean of samsara, do we come for refuge? Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to see everyone. Today our topic is Swami Vivekananda and freedom. This topic actually was connected with the 4th of July. I was planning to deliver this lecture just before the 4th of July. But as it turned out, I couldn't give it then. Because as we know, there's a special connection with the 4th of July and freedom, and also a special connection with Swami Vivekananda and the 4th of July. And we can call Swami Vivekananda a great apostle of freedom. Swami Vivekananda very much admired the American spirit of freedom, the spirit of freedom he found when he came here. He had a lot of praise for this country also. When he, in his letters back to India, he had a lot of praise. He wrote, writing about Indian, the, in, the poor of India, he wrote, give them their rights and let them stand on their rights. This is the glory of the American civilization. Compare the Irishman with knees bent, half-starved, with a little stick and bundle of clothes just arrived from the ship, with what he is after a few months' stay in America. He walks boldly and bravely. He has come from a country where he was a slave to a country where he is a brother. This spirit of uh, American freedom we can trace back partly to the very, the Declaration of Independence, which is a great document of freedom. And those relevant lines, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed with their creator, with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That little part of the Declaration is most famous. And... Swamiji noticed how the immigrants coming from Ireland or other places in Europe, they had come desperately poor and just with the whole load of the life on them. And within a few months, they'd be standing tall. They would have started to imbibe this ideal of freedom. Not that we're able to fully implement it, but it's a beautiful ideal. And Swamiji admired it. Of course, later he also saw some of the defects the exploitation by the wealthy of the poor and the, the defects of the capitalist system. But he also never would criticize a people to somebody else. He wouldn't speak, he wouldn't point out the defects of America to Indians, and nor would he point out the defects of India to Americans. But 
When speaking to Americans, he wasn't afraid, and nor when speaking to Indians. Another example, speaking about American women. Nowhere in the world are women like those of this country. How pure, independent, self-relying, and kind-hearted. It is the women who are the life and soul of this country. Again, I love the Yankee land, he writes. In America is the place, the people, the opportunity for everything. In America alone, there is something in the air which brings out whatever is best in everyone. So it's perhaps not surprising that when Swamiji was in Kashmir in 1898, traveling with Sister Niverita, who was an Irish disciple, and two American disciples, or Mrs. Oli Bull and Josephine McLeod, who didn't consider herself a disciple, but more or less we can look on her as a disciple. So the two Americans, uh, the, the Niverita, it seems, had the idea with Swamiji to observe the 4th of July and throw a surprise party for the two Americans in the party because it was the 4th of July, 1898. And I'll read that little portion that Niverita describes the occasion. With great fun and secrecy, the Swami and his one non-American disciple prepared to celebrate the 4th of July. A regret had been expressed in his hearing that we had no American flag with which to welcome the other members of the party to breakfast on their national festival. And late on the afternoon of the 3rd, he brought a pundit Durzi in great excitement, explaining that this man would be glad to imitate it if he were told how. The stars and stripes were very crudely represented, I fear, on the piece of cotton that was nailed with branches of evergreens to the head of the dining room boat when the Americans stepped on board for early tea on Independence Day. But the Swami had postponed a journey in order to be present at the little festival, and he himself contributed a poem to the addresses that were now read aloud by way of greeting. This poem of Swamiji's, which he wrote in honor of the occasion of the 4th of July, the day of American independence, is a beautiful peon or ode to freedom, an ode to freedom, we can call it. Although it was inspired by the 4th of July, we see that it's really a beautiful hymn to freedom arising everywhere. And although I think all of us or nearly all of us have heard it many times, I'd like to read it out. Behold, the dark clouds melt away that gathered thick at night and hung so like a gloomy pall above the earth. Before thy magic touch the world awakes, the birds in chorus sing, the flowers raise their star-like crowns, dew set and wave thee welcome fair. The lakes are opening wide in love their hundred thousand lotus eyes to welcome thee with all their depth. All hail to thee, thou Lord of light, a welcome new to thee today, O sun. Today thou sheddest liberty. Bethink thee how the world did wait and search for thee through time and clime. Some gave up home and love of friends and went in quest of thee, self-banished, through dreary oceans, through primeval forests, each step a struggle for their life or death. Then came the day when work bore fruit, and worship 
love and sacrifice fulfilled, accepted, and complete. Then thou, propitious, rose to shed the light of freedom on mankind. Move on, O Lord, in thy resistless path, till thy high noon o'erspreads the world, till every land reflects thy light, till men and women with uplifted head behold their shackles broken and know in springing joy their life renewed. It's beautiful to see how for Swami Vivekananda everything is given a spiritual turn. Although the day is celebrating political freedom, here he is celebrating all kinds of freedom. Men and women with uplifted head behold their shackles broken and know in springing joy their life renewed. It's a beautiful image of freedom from all bonds, not only political bonds or economic bonds, but also attaining the emancipation, spiritual emancipation. We know that there is another day, another reason why Swami Vivekananda is connected with the 4th of July. This is a bittersweet incident, which is the day he chose to leave his body. This was also the 4th of July, 1902. Did he choose this day because it is the American Independence Day? Difficult to say. Some people, particularly American-born Vedantists, will say, yes, of course he did. He knew, and certainly he didn't have an, he certainly chose this day. He himself chose to leave the day. There is some evidence that he checked the almanac some days before, and he knew he was going to leave the body on this day. That he left his body in full consciousness is certain, and perhaps he appreciated also the idea that this day is connected with freedom. Nivedita writes about that last day that he had taken a walk, and on his return from this walk, the bell was ringing for even song, and he went to his own room and sat down facing towards the Ganges to meditate. It was the last time. The moment was come that had been foretold by his master from the beginning. Half an hour went by, and then, on the wings of that meditation, his spirit soared whence there could be no return, and the body was left like a folded vesture on the earth. Sri Ramakrishna had said, when he knows who he is, he will not remain any longer on the earth. Swamiji often pointed out that freedom is the first condition of growth in all phases of growth. In London, he spoke in this way, freedom is the first condition of growth. What you do not make free will never grow. The idea that you can make others grow and help their growth, that you can direct and guide them, always retaining for yourself the freedom of the teacher, is nonsense, a dangerous lie which has retarded the growth of millions and millions of human beings in this world. Let men have the light of liberty. That is the only condition of growth. Then he gives a very interesting example, makes a very interesting observation, contrasting the East and the West. He says, We in India allowed liberty in spiritual matters, 
and we have a tremendous spiritual power in religious thought even today. You, meaning the English people, you grant the same liberty in social matters and so have a splendid social organization. We have not given any freedom to the expansion of social matters and ours is a cramped society. You have never given any freedom in religious matters, but with fire and sword have enforced your beliefs, and the result is that religion is a stunted, degenerated growth in the European mind. In India, we have to take the shackles from society. In Europe, the chains must be taken from the feet of spiritual progress. Then will come a wonderful growth and development of man. Swamiji often felt that the East and the West will complement one another. The, here we see the free social system, the, so, the great strength of the social and political system in the West, is to complement and be complemented by the great spiritual strength of the Indian tradition. Again, he writes, Liberty is the first condition of growth, Just as a man must have liberty to think and speak, so he must have liberty in food, dress, and marriage, and in every other thing, so long as he does not injure others. Another example about the women of India. He wanted very much for the women of India to be uplifted, to receive education, but he only wanted to do that much, to help them be educated, and then they were to understand how they are to raise themselves. Hands off, he would say, hands off. Are you a woman that you know how to raise women? Educate the women and they will be able to understand what is best for them. In, to his own workers also he gave great freedom. Nivedita remembers, it would have been altogether inconsistent with the Swami's idea of freedom to have sought to impose his own conceptions on a disciple. Thus, when Nivedita was building her school, the, which is now known as the Nivedita School for Girls, he didn't dictate how she should do it. He left her completely free. Again, she writes, Vivekananda was too great an educator to disregard the freedom of the disciple. It was not in his nature, as he said once, to interfere with liberty, even to prevent mistakes. It was for him to point out the source of an error only when it had been committed. So this is how we really learn. We learn from making mistakes. So Swamiji was the kind of teacher who leaves the student free to make the mistake. Afterwards, to point out, well, this is what went wrong. I think it's most natural that Swami Vivekananda would support freedom in so many ways because he himself was a free soul. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Narendra and people of his type belong to the class of the ever-free. They are never entangled in the world. When they grow a little older, they feel the awakening of inner consciousness and go directly toward God. When they grow a little older, they feel the awakening of inner consciousness and go directly toward God. They come to the world only to teach others. They never care for anything of the world. They are never attached to lust and gold. Sri Ramakrishna used to say there are four types of people, and he used to give a very 
amusing in some ways simile about that, about some fishermen who cast their nets into a pond. In Bengal, of course, there's ponds everywhere. They call them tanks for some strange reason. And they, the fisher, of course, the Bengalis love to eat fish, so there's fishermen fishing in these tanks, and they, they cast their nets in, and they haul them in to get the fish. Now, Sri Ramakrishna says, there are some fish which are never caught by the net. They're so clever. No matter how the fishermen try to throw their nets, the, those big fish, they somehow escape. The, they don't get caught by the net. But most of the fish are gathered up in the net. Now, a few of the fish are able to jump out. Though the net's being gathered in, a few of the fish jump out, and the fishermen say, oh, there goes a big one. So some of the fish escape. Most of the fish, though, although they're struggling, they get hauled in. Now, there's many fish, though, they don't even bother to struggle. They swim right down into the mud in the bottom of the pond, and they have the one strand of the net right in their mouth, and they burrow into the mud and think, we are quite all right here, we are safe here, not knowing, not realizing that in a very short time they'll be hauled out with the net. So likewise, there are four types of people in this world. There are the class of the ever-free. They are never bound, never bound by maya, never get caught in the meshes of this world. Swami Vivekananda was one such. Then there are the struggling. And of those struggling, some get free. They attain liberation. They jump out of the net and make a big splash. But most, they don't, aren't able to get fully free. So they get caught. But these are the, uh, the struggling. And then the real bound souls, they're the ones, they don't even realize they're bound. They don't even realize they're caught in the net. They're stuck in the mire in the bottom of the pond and they don't know that in a short time, they're going to be served for, for dinner. So these four classes of people, Sri Ramakrishna used to tell. When Swami Vivekananda was only 23 years old, he experienced what is called nirvikalpa samadhi. This is the all-effacing experience of union with the Absolute. When the body and the mind are, disappear and one is just only Brahman remains. The song which we, this beautiful hymn which we heard this morning, Nahisurya, the sun, there is no sun, there is no moon, no light at all. This song was composed by Swami Vivekananda about that experience of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He had longed for this experience of the final spiritual realization and one night he was meditating and he felt a bright light burning behind his head, as if, and after that he knew nothing of the external world. He had no consciousness of body or mind or world. Afterwards, when his mind again became conscious of the external world, first all he could find was his head. And he cried out in, in great alarm, where is my body? I can only find my head. It's hard to imagine, but it was like that. And one of his brothers ran to Sri Ramakrishna, worried that well, what's happened with Naran, something's wrong. Sri Ramakrishna said, let him stay like that. He has pestered me long enough. Let him stay like that for some time. Afterwards, he came to Sri Ramakrishna. And Sri Ramakrishna said, now the mother has shown you everything. But this revelation will remain under lock and key. And I shall keep the key. When you have accomplished the mother's work, 
you will find the treasure again. So this was, Sri Ramakrishna put it as tasting his mango. You have tasted your mango, now I'll keep it. Because he knew that the ever-free soul Swami Vivekananda was, why should he bother with this world at all? So a very thin veil of maya was placed over his eyes, as it were, by the Divine Mother, so that he could do his work in this world. And I think that's also why he was so extremely... He was unable to bear any kind of bondage. Wherever he saw bondage, he found it intolerable. Why? Because he had experienced that infinite freedom in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. He was an ever-free soul, and yet that veil, ever so thin though it was, was still there, so he could do his work. So this experience of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, uh, one experiences the freedom of the self. This is a fundamental conception in Vedanta, that the Atman, the self, who we really are, is ever free. Shankaracharya describes the self, the Atman, as nitya, shuddha, buddha, mukta, swabhava. By its very nature, eternal, pure, illumined, and free. Swabhava, by its very nature, not that it's some quality of the self, but by its very nature, it is nitya, shuddha, buddha, mukta. It is nitya, it is eternal. When we think of the word eternal, we think of a long time. May sometimes our lectures seem like they may be eternal lectures, <laughs> going on for a long time. We think, okay, extending on as long as we can imagine, a hundred years, a thousand years, forever, forever, nitya. Actually, nitya means, it means beyond time. First is the Atman, then is time. We live in time. Our whole experience is marked by time. We measure time by the succession of events, the succession of thoughts in our mind. It is impossible to think of what is beyond time because thoughts themselves occur within time. And yet, such is the self, beyond time. It is time which is in the self. It is also shuddha, just absolutely pure. Nothing is added, nothing is mixed with the Atman. If we take a pure glass of water and we put in a drop of milk, the whole glass will turn cloudy. And the Atman is unmixed with anything else. Then it's Buddha, it is illumined, it is awake. Pure consciousness, it doesn't need anything else to illumine it. If we want to see the sun, we don't need to bring some other light to see it. In a dark room, if we want to see what's there, we need to bring some light. But the sun doesn't need anything to see it. Self-luminous, Swami Vivekananda writes about it, or says about it. Neither can the mind nor the spiritual body be self-luminous. They are not of the essence of intelligence. That which is self-luminous cannot decay. The luminosity of that which shines through a borrowed light comes and goes. But that which is light itself, what can make that come and go, flourish and decay? The moon, we see, waxes and wanes because it shines through the borrowed light of the sun. The light which shines through the mind is not its own. Whose is it then? It must belong to that which has it as its own essence, and as such can never decay or die, never become stronger or weaker. It is self-luminous. It is luminosity itself. 
The soul has not knowledge, existence, and blessedness as its qualities. They are the essence of the soul. And then mukta. Mukta, absolutely free, ever free. It is not bound by anything, not limited by anything, not limited by time or space, because it is first the Atman, only then come time and space. It is avang manaso gocharam, as we heard in the song, beyond mind and speech, which is why it is so difficult to conceive of. It cannot be talked about even, but it can be realized. We can realize that we are the ever-free self. This is the goal of religion and the goal of life as described in Vedanta, to attain or to regain or to realize our ever-free nature. Swami Vivekananda would say, Freedom, O freedom, freedom, O freedom, is the song of the soul. The ancient Indian seers developed a scheme of life, and we know about it. They call it the Purusharthas, four aims of life were accepted and developed for the human being to live a harmonious and balanced life. The seers never permitted us to fulfill our desires. They never said, no, you shouldn't desire anything. You must give up everything and go to the Himalayas from the get-go. We have certain desires. We are permitted to fulfill them. Kama. We have certain desires. And one of those desires, and to help fulfill those desires, we need wealth. We are permitted to strive for wealth. But these two strivings for fulfilling our desires and for amassing wealth must be regulated in this scheme, in this conception, by dharma, which we can say is a, it's not so easy to it's a lecture topic unto itself, but we can say, in a word, the principle of unselfishness, the principle of sacrifice, the principle of give and take. So these three are the three varga, which allow us to lead a harmonious life in this world, striving for to attain our desires and our wealth, but in a spirit of sacrifice and service and living harmoniously with all beings. But there comes a time when we are no longer satisfied with this trivarga, with these three goals. We want something more. We still feel bound. Then we want absolute freedom. We want freedom from rebirth, freedom from embodiment again, attaining that perfect freedom. We want to realize that we are the infinite Atman. Then we get what is called mumukshuttam, the longing for liberation, longing for moksha. So this is the fourth purusharta, the fourth goal of the human being is moksha, ultimate freedom. Actually, we can see that all striving is striving for freedom. When we're striving for wealth, we're striving for freedom from want. We're striving for so many things, striving for freedom from fear, striving for freedom from misery. Oftentimes we're striving for freedom for the senses. We want the freedom to experience whatever we want, to do whatever we want. And of course the highest freedom is freedom from the senses. Then we come to the idea of jivan mukti, free while living, those who attain the liberation in this life itself. Swami Vivekananda says, What is mukti? 
that which teaches that even the happiness of this life is slavery, and the same is the happiness of the life to come, because neither this world nor the next is beyond the laws of nature. Only the slavery of this world is to that of the next as an iron chain is to a golden one. Again, happiness, wherever it may be, being within the laws of nature, is subject to death and will not last ad infinitum. Therefore, man must aspire to become mukta. He must go beyond the bondage of the body. Slavery will not do. This is an interesting idea that the, even the joys of heaven are to be considered as chains, chains of gold perhaps, but chains all the same because it's not an infinite and eternal experience. This idea of slavery, hmm? when we feel that even the happiness of this world, even the joys that we experience in this world are just like slavery, then this mamukshutva arises, this longing for liberation. One of my friends says, this jiva mukti means free while living. We want no post-mortem emancipation. Free in this life itself, no post-mortem emancipation. One thing that characterizes the jiva mukta, the free while living, is intense joy. The Viveka Chudamani, the great text on non-dualism by Shankaracharya, retells the dialogue between the guru and the disciple. And the guru teaches the disciple that he is the self, the atman. And at a certain point, the disciple attains that realization. And then he gives a, a song in 38, ver- 38 verses of ecstatic outpouring at his realization an outpouring of wonder and ecstasy. I'll just read out one of these 38 verses, but we get a little taste of that joy. Dhanyo ham kritakrityo ham vimukto ham bhavagrahat nityananda svarupo ham purno ham tvadanugrahat Blessed am I, I have attained the consummation of my life and am free from the clutches of transmigration. I am the essence of eternal bliss. I am infinite, all through your grace. That is the Guru's grace. We can imagine Swami Vivekananda saying something like this to Sri Ramakrishna after his experience of Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So after this experience, how does the Jivan Mukta live in the world? How does the ever-free soul live in the world? Swami Vivekananda gives a wonderful example about uh, which he takes from his own experience when he was wandering through India. He writes, Once I was traveling in the desert in India. I traveled for over a month and always found the most beautiful landscapes before me, beautiful lakes and all that. One day I was very thirsty and I wanted to have a drink at one of these lakes. But when I approached that lake, it vanished. Immediately, with a blow, came into my brain that idea that this was a mirage about which I had read all my life. And then I remembered and smiled at my folly that for the last month all the beautiful landscapes and lakes I had been seeing were this mirage. But I could not distinguish them then. The next morning, I again began my march. There was the lake and the landscape, but with it immediately came the idea, this is a mirage. Once known, it has lost its power of illusion. 
then he applies it to the Jivan Mukta. So this illusion of the universe will break one day. The whole of this will vanish, melt away. This is realization. Again, this world will come. Men and women and animals will come, just as the mirage came the next day, but not with the same force. Along with it will come the idea that I know its nature now, and it will cause no bondage, no more pain, nor grief, nor misery. Whenever anything miserable will come, the mind will be able to say, I know you as a hallucination. When a man has reached that state, he is called Jivan Mukta, living free, free even while living. The Jivan Mukta has realized his identity with the Absolute. He has realized that he is one with God. Swami Vivekananda lived as a wandering sannyasin for a number of years, anonymous, traveling from place to place, changing his name from place to place, utterly free. The traditional life of the monk in India embodies something of the freedom of the self, the freedom of the soul in its setup. Just the monk is to wander from place to place, not get attached to anything, beg his food, and just live in the self, with his mind ever fixed in the self, in the Atman. In Swami Vivekananda's poem, The Song of the Sannyasin, he gives a taste of what that is like, that utterly free life. I'd like to read out a couple of verses from it. We all know it, but they're so beautiful. Where seekest thou? he asks. Where seekest thou? That freedom, friend, this world nor that can give. In books and temples vain thy search. Thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on. Then cease lament, let go thy hold, sannyasin bold. Say om, touch sat om. Ours is the hand, huh? Just cease lament, let go your hold. You are pure already, Swamiji says. You are free already. If you think you are free, free you are this moment. And if you think you are bound, bound you will be. This was also one of Sri Ramakrishna's teachings. He who says constantly, I am a sinner, I am a sinner, that man becomes a sinner. He who says, I am pure, I am free, he becomes free. Then this freedom of the monk's life, have thou no home? What home can hold thee, friend? The sky thy roof, the grass thy bed, and food what chance may bring, well cooked or ill, judge not. No food or drink can taint that noble self which knows itself. Like rolling river free thou ever be, sannyasin bold. Say om, tat sat, om. People have been welcoming me home, and I always remember this verse, and I say, I have no home. <laughs> In some cases, we find even a kind of madness among some of the wandering monks, a madness of the utter freedom of an utter, utter otherworldliness, perhaps wandering about nude, covered with ashes or covered with mud, like an avadhut. Sri Ramakrishna tells about one such ever-free soul who reached uh, Dakshineshwar. And he says, A few days after the dedication of the temple at Dakshineshwar, a madman came there who was really a sage endowed with the knowledge of Brahman. He had a bamboo twig in one hand, 
and a potted mango plant in the other, and was wearing torn shoes. He didn't follow any social conventions. After bathing in the Ganges, he didn't perform any religious rites. He ate something that he carried in a corner of his wearing cloth. Then he entered the Kali temple and chanted hymns to the deity. The temple trembled. Haladhari was then in the shrine. The madman wasn't allowed to eat at the guest house, but he paid no attention to this slight. He searched for food in the rubbish heap where the dogs were eating crumbs from the discarded leaf plates. Now and then, he pushed aside the dogs to get his crumbs. The dogs didn't mind either. Haladhari followed him and asked, Who are you? Are you a Purnagnani? The madman whispered, Shh, yes, I am a Purnagnani. We all went to see the man. He spoke words of great wisdom to us, but behaved like a madman before others. Just imagine, you go to Dakshineshwar and you're not allowed to eat in the with the other guests, with all the, the fresh food. And you don't, he doesn't mind at all, doesn't faze him a bit. He goes and the, the leaf plates which were thrown out with a few scraps of food here and there, the dogs are licking the plates. He just goes over there, he pushes them aside and he has his share. They also didn't mind. So we see some of that mood of utter otherworldliness, not caring for anything, also in Swami Vivekananda. He often would quote from the Dhammapada, Go forward without a path, fearing nothing, caring for nothing. Wander alone like the rhinoceros, even as the lion not trembling at noises, even as the wind not caught in a net, even as the lotus leaf unstained by the water. Do thou wander alone like the rhinoceros. I'd like to turn now to a very interesting correspondence Swamiji had with Mary Hale, his American sister. This is found in the, the uh, complete works of Swamiji. As, we, as you know, Mary Hale was the daughter of the, one of the daughters of the Hale family, who were his American, real American family. When he first arrived in Chicago for the Parliament of Religions, he had lost his way and was sitting on the stoop and looking forlorn, and Mrs. Hale came out and brought him into their home, and that became his second home. I mean, his home, although Sanyasan has no home, still that became his home in this country, and they were his, like his own sisters. Not like his own sisters, they were actually his own sisters. So uh, the, the correspondence he had with the sisters, especially with Mary, reveal a very intimate, personal, human side of Swami Vivekananda. Now, Swamiji had often to fight with the missionaries and the, he had to struggle to break the terrible bigotry and all the lies which were being spread about India by the missionaries. So sometimes he would get in some, some pretty hot arguments, as he put it. And uh, after one of these incidents of having a hot argument with a Presbyterian priest, Mrs. Bull and Mary Hale both scolded him that you should be nice. Why, what, where is that nice Swami who we saw at the Parliament of Religions blessing everyone and all harmony and everything? Now you're having all this fighting. What is this? You should be nice. So we feel that Mary, being a younger sister, probably overstepped her bounds a little bit there. And uh, Swami Vivekananda wrote to her on the 1st of February, 1895. 
The other day at Miss Thursby's, I had an excited argument with a Presbyterian gentleman who, as usual, got very hot, angry, and abusive. However, I was afterwards severely reprimanded by Mrs. Bull for this, as such things hinder my work. So, it seems, is your opinion. I'm glad you write about it just now, because I have been giving a good deal of thought to it. And then Swamiji lets her have it with both barrels, as it were. It's a long letter, but I'd like to read a fairly lengthy excerpt, or a few excerpts. Swamiji writes, I will compare truth to a corrosive substance of infinite power. It burns its way in wherever it falls, in soft substance at once, hard granite slowly, but it must. What is writ is writ. I am so, so sorry, sister, that I cannot make myself sweet and accommodating to every black falsehood, but I cannot. I have suffered for it all my life, but I cannot. I have essayed and essayed, but I cannot. I have given up. The Lord is great. He will not allow me to become a hypocrite. Now, let what is in come out at last. Be still, my soul. Be alone, and the Lord is with you. Life is nothing. Death is a delusion. All this is not. God alone is. Fear not, my soul. Be alone. Sister, the way is long, the time is short, evening is approaching. I have to go home soon. I have no time to give my manners a finish. I cannot find time to deliver my message. In one word, I have a message to give. I have no time to be sweet to the world, and every attempt at sweetness makes me a hypocrite. You are mistaken, utterly mistaken, if you think I have a work, as Mrs. Bull thinks. I have no work under or beyond the sun. I have a message, and I will give it after my own fashion. I will neither Hinduize my message, nor Christianize it, nor make it any eyes in the world. I will only my eyes it, and that is all. Liberty, mukti, is all my religion, and everything that tries to curb it I will avoid by fight or flight. Pooh, I try to pacify the priests. Sister, do not take this amiss. But you are babies, and babies must submit to be taught. You have not yet drunk of that fountain which makes reason unreason, mortal immortal, this world a zero, and of man a god. Sister, you do not know the sannyasin. He stands on the heads of the Vedas, say the Vedas, because he is free from churches and sects and religions and prophets and books and all of that ilk. Missionary or no missionary, let them howl and attack me with all they can. I take them, as Bhartrihari says, Go thou thy ways, Sanyasin. Some will say, Who is this madman? Others, Who is this Chandala? Others will know thee to be a sage. Be glad at the prattle of the worldlings. But when they attack, know that the elephant passing through the marketplace is always beset by curs, but he cares not. He goes straight on his own way, so it is always, when a great soul appears, there will be numbers to bark after him. So that's a part of this fierce letter of independence, establishing his independence to deliver his message. And naturally, Swami 
Vivekananda must have felt a little worried afterwards that he might have hurt Mary's feelings a little bit with this kind of very harsh letter. So two weeks later, he wrote another letter. This first letter comes in the fifth volume of the complete works. And after that, this uh, second letter is part of what is titled An Interesting Correspondence between Swami Vivekananda and Mary Hale. And he wrote this letter in verse in very simple and delightful verse. And the first three verses are expressing his love and affection for his own sister. I'll read those out. Now, Sister Mary, you need not be sorry for the hard raps I gave you. You know full well, though you like me tell, with my whole heart I love you. The babies I bet, the best friends I met, will stand by me in weal and woe. And so will I do, you know it too. Life, name, or fame, even heaven forgo for the sweet sisters four. Sans reproche et sans peur, the truest, noblest, steadfast, best. And this poem letter, this is the first part, called forth from Sister Mary a wonderful reply, also in very nice poetry, nice poem. And again, Swamiji wrote another poem, and she wrote another poem, and he wrote another poem. So there's a back and forth of these poems. You can read them in the eighth, eighth volume of Complete Works. It's very nice. And then the second part of this letter he wrote to Mary Hale is a poem which is now produced, printed separately as The Song of the Free. It's one of Swamiji's very powerful poems expressing the infinite nature of the self, the glory of the Atman, the divinity and oneness of reality, affirming that, yes, I am divine. And I'd like to close with this poem. So I read this poem out. We can take a few moments of silence after that. This is the... We can see that here he's again affirming, although he's being nice to Sister Mary now, he's still saying, but don't forget, this is the truth. This is the truth, the independence, the freedom. The wounded snake, its hood unfurls. The flame stirred up doth blaze. The desert air resounds the calls of heart-struck lion's rage. The cloud puts forth its deluge strength when lightning cleaves its breast. When the soul is stirred to its inmost depth, great ones unfold their best. Let eyes grow dim and heart grow faint, and friendship fail and love betray. Let fate its hundred horrors send, and clotted darkness block the way. All nature wear one angry frown to crush you out. Still, know, my soul, you are divine. March on and on, nor right nor left, but to the goal. Nor angel I, nor man, nor brute, nor body, mind, nor he, nor she. The books do stop in wonder mute to tell my nature. I am he. Before the sun, the moon, the earth, before the stars or comets free, before e'en time has had its birth, I was, I am, and I will be. The beauteous earth, the glorious sun, the calm sweet moon, the spangled sky, Causation's laws do make them run. They live in bonds, 
in bonds they die. And mind its mantle, dreamy net, casts o'er them all and holds them fast. In warp and woof of thought are set earth, hells and heavens, or worst or best. No, these are but the outer crust, all space and time, all effect, cause. I am beyond all sense, all thoughts, the witness of the universe. Not two, nor many, tis but one. And thus in me all me's I have. I cannot hate, I cannot shun myself from me. I can but love. From dreams awake, from bonds be free, be not afraid. This mystery, my shadow, cannot frighten me. No, once for all, that I am he. Sarvastarat Durgani Sarvobhadrani Pashyatu Sarvasad Buddhimapnotu Sarvasarvatranandatu Durjana Sajjano Bhuyat Sajjana Shanti Mapnuyat Shanto Mucheta Bandhe Bhyo Muktaschanyan Vimochayet Swastif Prajabhya Paripalayantam Nyayena margena mahimahesha Go brahmane bhyashubhamastu nityam Loka samasta sukhino bhavantu Loka samasta sukhino bhavantu Om shanti 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 May all be freed from dangers May all realize what is good May all be actuated by noble thoughts. May all rejoice everywhere. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain tranquility. May the tranquil be free from bonds. May the freed make others free. May good betide all people. May the sovereign rule the earth following the righteous path. May all beings ever attain what is good. May the worlds be prosperous and happy. Home, peace. Peace, peace.